Well, remain standing for just a moment, and let me have you take your copy of the Scriptures and turn to the book of Romans to chapter 8 this morning. And we will read this morning just the first four verses. Romans chapter 8, this will be verses 1 through 4. Paul, writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you thanking you again for your word that you've given to us, uh, that uh, repository of, of truth. Uh, that we are able to um, come to and to know that we will benefit from it. And we pray, Lord, that that would indeed be the case this morning as we hear your word preached, that we would uh, benefit, that we would rejoice as we consider what you have done through your Son. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. To introduce the message this morning, let me have you listen as I read another verse from another part of Scripture. This is, you don't have to turn there, from John 8. This is Jesus, um, a time that he spoke to the Pharisees and was speaking in response to their taking offense at him. And in John 8.34, we read this, that Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And then this. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The subject of the verses that we read from Romans chapter 8 this morning is freedom. The freedom that comes to Christians, to every Christian, to you this morning if you are a believer in Christ, because of the fact that His Son has made you free. And therefore, Christian, you are free indeed. Amen? And this truth uh, is a great statement of security that we have in Christ, and it's a great source of assurance for us. Remember the difference between security and assurance. Security is an objective truth that we have, whether we recognize it or not, whether we appreciate it or not, whether we rejoice in it or not, whether we feel it or not. As a Christian, security is something that we have. Assurance, on the other hand, is our own feeling of that and sense of that security. And that comes and goes. But if we take those together, the security and the assurance that we have, remember that that's really the theme of this marvelous eighth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. 
Remember from last week that Paul gives to us the chapter's main thought right there in the opening verse, which we read this morning, and then we'll be supporting that and teaching us, expanding on it uh, on, through the rest of the chapter. So let's start this morning as we look at these first four verses with just a, a reminder a reminder of that main point that we saw last week. And if you take notes, if you're looking for the outline, if I think it's in the bulletin, we'll be looking at a reminder, we'll be looking at the rescue, and then we'll be looking at the realization of that rescue. But first, a reminder of what we looked at last week. Again, verse 1 simply says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A really monumental statement and a statement of what I would say is one of the two great overarching benefits that are ours in Christ when we are justified by God. We've seen and and we looked at it, I think we reviewed that last week, when God grounded in the work of Jesus Christ pronounces you declares you righteous in his sight, which you receive by faith alone, when you are justified, there are many benefits that come from that. But Paul in these recent chapters of Romans has has brought forward two that I think stand out above all the rest. The first is back at the beginning of chapter 5, where Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, through justification, on account of our justification, the hostility that existed between you and God is removed completely. All of the things that caused that that lack of peace, that hostility, that enmity, they're all removed. They're all removed by Christ. And so you have peace with God. greatest commodity in the universe, peace with God. Our relationship with God is made right through our being justified. That's the first one. And then the second great benefit is here in chapter 8, verse 1, where Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just as our relationship with God is made right, so here we learn that our relationship with God's law is made right. When God justifies us, our sins are forgiven once for all. The condemnation that comes from us breaking God's law is gone forever. That condemnation, that pronouncement of guilt that we talked about last week, which was rightly on you and I because of our sin. A condemnation that would result in eternal punishment is removed in the case of everyone who is in Christ, everyone who is a Christian. Because, as we learned last week, Jesus himself came and took on himself, along with our sin, the condemnation that results from that sin. He was condemned in our place. And he bore the punishment that results from that condemnation that results from that sin. When he bore the wrath of God on the cross. 
And he did so in such a a full and satisfactory, acceptable way that for those then who are covered by Jesus' redemptive work, those who are in Christ Jesus, as Paul refers to them here in verse 1, that condemnation is now and forever gone, removed in our justification. That's verse 1. That's a reminder of what we looked at last week. And that's a reminder of what the rest of this chapter is going to be about. About what comes from that. About explaining that. About looking at some of the, the various facets of that great truth. And here in verses 2 through 4, Paul begins working that truth out. And he speaks here in terms of a rescue. And so let's look then secondly at this rescue that we are the beneficiaries of. Look at verse 2. Now as we look at it, the first thing I want us to see is that little word that begins the verse. The word for. You know, sometimes the little things are the most important. When you're studying your Bible, when you're reading your Bible, Those little words are so important to your understanding. Don't just kind of blow by them without letting them inform your understanding of what you're reading. You know, keep keep track and see the importance of all of those all of those words. Uh, The fanboys, right? For and not, but or yet and so. Fanboys, a way to remember those. And of course, we can't forget our good friend, therefore. Pay attention to those things as you read. They help you to understand. And here the word is for, which means, or which here means, something close to because. And it shows that what follows gives a cause or reason, a clarification for for what came before. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for this reason. Because of this, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, I mentioned last week that the the broad strokes of Romans chapter 8 are very easy to to understand and to follow. And the same thing here, the the, the general gist of what is being said here is is very easy to understand. But verse 2 is a tough verse. What is he exactly saying here? Again, the general statement is clear. Something that he calls the law of the spirit of life, Paul says, has set you free from something else that Paul calls the law of sin and death. That's fine and good. But what does he mean by the law of the spirit of life? And what does he mean by the law of sin and death? Those are both terms that Paul doesn't use anywhere else in exactly those words, especially the first one. We've seen as we've gone along, the idea of law is even used differently by Paul. Even in Romans, it can refer to a couple of things. We've seen that most of the time it refers to the moral law. The Ten Commandments, the places in in God's Word where He commands us regarding uh, His moral statutes, the requirements that God lays down, that's generally what it means. And to see that, we just need to go back to the previous chapter, because throughout chapter 7, 
Paul speaks in that way. Um, In verse 4, he says, You also have died to the law. You have died to those commandments. Um, You have died to the commandments of God as a way of righteousness or as a source of condemnation. He's talking about the moral law. In verse 7, he says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? The question there is, is God's moral law sin? That's what he's talking about. Are we to conclude that God's law is a sinful thing? Uh, To which, remember, the answer was, by no means. And likewise, in chapter 7, as he talks about the law, he uses the word law in that way in verses 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 12 and 14 and 16 and 22 and 25. A lot of talk about the law, you remember, from chapter 7. But that's not the only way he uses it, not even in chapter 7. In verse 23, look at that there in chapter 6, verse 23. I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 23. He says, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Well, there, remember from a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago maybe, uh, that the law there is talking about a principle about a, a subjective uh, coercion that, that Paul says dwells in my members. It's sort of something that has uh, a power over me. And you see there that he refers to it as the law of sin. So which of those meanings is Paul using here in Romans chapter 8? And again, what of the law of the spirit of life? Now, it's obvious there that the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, whom we mentioned last week, shows up a lot in chapter 8. And on this, we really don't have the guidance of any other usage. There's nothing really close to that in Paul's writings, in the New Testament, in the whole Bible. But it's important to, to, to try to understand what he is saying, how he is using it. And here's, here's sort of why it's important. Remember back, it's been a few weeks ago when we were in the last half there of, of Romans chapter 7, where Paul is speaking of, he says, how I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry, out, carry it out for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Remember when we looked at that, we learned that there are a couple of different opinions on, or a few different opinions, on who Paul is referring to, or when he was writing, or how he's referring to himself. It was it Paul before he was a Christian, or was it when he was a young Christian, or is his experience even then as he wrote the epistles as a mature believer? Or is is he representing another larger group and using himself as an example? Well, there have been likewise some in church history, and they're still around today, who say that Paul there in Romans chapter 7, that last half there, is speaking of what they call the carnal Christian, the fleshly Christian, a true believer who has just not yet really devoted himself fully to God. And so he exists in that that state uh, that Paul describes there, that struggle, which Paul in Romans 7, they say, uh, uses by uh, 
looking at himself. Now, we saw when we looked at that passage that that is definitely not what Paul is saying. But then when you get to chapter 8, according to this view, chapter 7 is speaking of carnal Christian. Chapter 8 is talking about something different. In chapter 8, things change. And why do they change? Well, they change because of the introduction of the Spirit. Now the Spirit's there. So Romans 8 is describing a committed Christian, a sold-out-to-Christ Christian who has received a, a second blessing of the Holy Spirit and is now not a carnal Christian, but is a spiritual Christian, a, a victorious Christian. And so the, the exhortation then to the congregation, to those hearing or reading, is to see that you can get yourself out of chapter 7 and into chapter 8, because that's where the good uh, life of a Christian lies. And so what happens then is this becomes a teaching about sanctification and moving from Romans 7 to Romans 8. So to see these references to the law of the spirit of of the law of sin and death as speaking of what's going on inside a Christian um, helps them in that interpretation. But here's the problem with that. And it goes back to that little word. That little word for which crops up, if you look there in um, verse 2, the word for crops up not just at the beginning of verse 2, but if you look down at the beginning of verse 3, it's there as well, which then in that verse goes on to to further elaborate on what is going on in verse 2, which is explaining the reason for Paul's statement in verse 1. So it's like a little chain of argumentation there. So go back to verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. We've seen already that this very clearly is talking about something that is true of us, right? Condemnation has to do with with a declaration of guilt. And we we say that that is is gone. Um, Our state before God, it was one of guilt, it was one of condemnation, but now because of what Christ has done, it is no longer that. And it never will be that. And if we say that verse 2 now is talking about the principle of the, the work of the Spirit overcoming the, the Christ, in a Christian the principle of the work of the law of sin, the influence of sin, then Paul, what Paul would really be doing then is saying that there is no condemnation because of the ongoing work of the Spirit. And because it is setting us free, or he is setting us free from that old influence of the law. Or to put it in theological terms, he would be teaching justification by sanctification. And we know that that's not right. And then when we get to verse 3 here, and we'll get to it in a few moments, we're going to see again that Paul is talking about objective work. The objective working of Christ to change our relationship to the law and to sin, working through a change of our relationship in order to change our standing. It is about the work that Christ does on our behalf. Okay, so that's a lot, um, and maybe a lot to ingest, but that's okay. Sort of the bottom line is this. The law of sin and death can either be talking about the law, the moral law, or it can be talking about the, the influence that the law has on us. 
Uh, and e- either one of those is possible. It's called the law of sin and death because it, it is a law that, that leads to death. That com- sin comes about by it, as we saw back in Romans chapter 7, and it leads to death. And verse 2 says that the law of the spirit of life has set you free from that. So whether it is that overriding influence of the law, which we saw back in chapter 7, we have died to, or it is the, the moral law of God, which we've seen is not the basis of our standing before God, that too has been overcome. And both of them have been overcome by what Paul says at the beginning of the verse is the law of the spirit of life. It is that by which the Spirit of life, the Holy Spirit, gives life. That's what it's talking about. That is a tough phrase, the law of the Spirit of life. Having law in with the Spirit is odd. But what is it that frees us from condemnation? What is it that allows this verse to go back into verse 1 and be a proof for that? Well, what gives us freedom from condemnation is the good news of the work of Christ. The law of the spirit of life is another way of speaking about the gospel. It's a way of speaking about the gospel as the spirit works through it. Right? You know the gospel does not just save by itself. Paul says it is the power of God into salvation, but only for those who believe. And that is the work of the Spirit to cause us to believe. So the Holy Spirit takes the gospel and makes it effective in those that God intends to make it effective in. And so what happens is that this law of the Spirit of life, and we'll talk about that law part a little bit later, it works in us to cause us to be freed from the law of sin and death, the law that brings sin, that brings death. So that's really what's going on. Now, we do have to admit that this terminology is strange. Why does he speak of the gospel as the law of the spirit of life? Certainly he's not saying that the gospel isn't just another law. That's absurd. That's unbiblical. And though this is a strange term, it's not without... A certain precedent. There's another place where Paul speaks in a similar way. Look back in Romans chapter 3, um, the beginning of Paul's discussion here of justification. In verses 21 through 26, while you're turning back there, if you are, Paul speaks of a righteousness that comes from God, uh, that, that is born witness by the prophets, that comes through faith to everyone who believes and by which we are justified by his grace as a gift. But then look at verse 27 of chapter 3. He says, Then what becomes of our boasting, so as a a result of the fact that it's by grace, where, where does boasting fit into this? And he says, it's excluded. It doesn't. We can't boast of any of this. And then he explains it there by saying, By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. That's similarly strange. Paul uses the term law there in the very context of the gospel. They're obviously not referring to to the moral law, but using it as a way of speaking again of that principle, that, that principle that we are under, so to speak. He's talking about the working of faith. 
So the law of faith there is obviously the working of faith. And I think that informs our understanding of what he means by the spirit or the law of the spirit of life. It is the, the working of the spirit through the gospel that frees us, and that's the key. Right? Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The freedom, that's the main point. The spirit brings freedom from death, from sin. That's the point to take away from it. You know, we can look and we can discuss about specifically uh, what is objective and subjective here in some of this understanding of the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. But the bottom line is that the spirit frees you from the sin and the death that would be yours otherwise. How do I know that's the case? That little word. That little little word for means that what is going on in verse 2 is explaining what's going on in verse 1. That the law of the spirit of life, having set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of of sin and death, is what makes Paul be able to say that there is no condemnation, that it is done. So really, what we're seeing here in verse 2 is nothing new. We've seen it before. We're freed from the bondage of trying to please God through adherence to the law, which we can never do anyway. And we have a reason then that we are able to know that we are not condemned because of the work of the Spirit, because of the work of the Spirit through the gospel to free you, to rescue you from where you were. That's verse 2 explaining verse 3. And that takes place, again, right in the middle of the verse, verse for those who are in Christ Jesus. The outgrowth of all of that is that if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. No condemnation. So then we move from the rescue to the realization of that rescue, and that's in verses 3 and 4. Again, nothing really new here. Nothing Paul hasn't already been teaching us earlier in his letter. Let's look at it. Read verses 3 and 4 along with me. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Notice again, everything is linked together there at the beginning of the verse with that word for, this chain of explanation going on. Here is how, then, in fact, we are set free from condemnation. And this verse tells us who did it. It tells us how, it answers the question, how did he do it? What did he do? And why did he do it? Let's look at those. We'll take them in a little separate order. But first, let's look at who did it. The beginning of the verse tells us, doesn't it? For God has done. We see that everywhere in Scripture, don't we? We understand it everywhere in Scripture. It's imperative that we take note of it wherever we see it. For God has done, Christian. He has done what no one else did. He has done what no one else could do in that He has saved you. He has rescued you. He has destroyed the condemnation and removed it from you. 
And we see that God had to do it. He had to set us free because it was something that the alternative, which Paul says is the law, that it could not do. Back in chapter 3 of Romans again, Paul first brought this up. In Romans 3.20 he said, For by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. The law cannot bring justification. In the book of Acts, Paul's preaching to those in Antioch, and he says, By him, that is by Christ, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That's the moral law. If we are to be set free from the law, if we are to be set free from condemnation, Paul is saying, the law itself certainly cannot do it. The law, we've seen, Paul has taught, though good in and of itself, remember Paul said that the commandment is holy and righteous and good, he says, is therefore the law sin? God forbid. There's nothing wrong with the law itself, but the law only condemns. It does not set free. It does not rescue. It puts a standard out there that we can see it is a mirror that only shows us our failure to obey it. But freeing us, justifying us, is something that it just, verse 3, says could not do. It reveals sin. Romans 3.20, Romans 7.7. As we saw in chapter 7, verses 8 through 11, it can even increase our condemnation. It can increase our sin. Remember that it takes advantage of of the law and causes us to sin all the more. It can condemn us by pointing out our sin, but it cannot free us from that condemnation. Paul said elsewhere that if righteousness could have come through a law, it would have. But it can't. Now Paul, again, not wanting to be misunderstood about his understanding of the law and of the goodness of the law, reminds us, as he had earlier, that this is not the fault of the law itself, but he says it is the law weakened by the flesh. It's not the law's fault. It is the law torn to shred by our disobedience of it. Our sin. But since through sin we are unable to keep it, it is unable to do what needed to be done to set us free from our guilt. And so God himself had to do it. And he had to do it by some other way than through the law. How was that? Well, to make this a little easier, let's take up the last question. Here at the last part of verse 3, And look at the answer to the question, what did he do? What has God done that only God could do that the law could not do? Well, the end of the verse says, he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin. What what glorious news that we are not condemned because sin was condemned. Sin was put in its place. The result of the work of God is that sin itself was subjected to a judicial act of God and therefore sin was defamed. It was stripped of its ability to condemn those that are in Christ. 
In short, what God did was he dealt with sin. And he conquered it. He vanquished it so, Christian, that it cannot touch you as far as bringing you under condemnation again. There is therefore now no condemnation because of what God has done. The next question is, how did he do it? How did he do it? Well, look right at the middle of verse 3. Paul says he did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. And here's the good news. Here's the gospel. The law can't save us. The law can't save you. You can't save you. So God has to save you. And if you are a believer in Christ, he has. And he did it through sending his only begotten son. And John 3.18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. He sent his son to pay for our sin. And through that act, he condemned sin and freed you. He came, it says, in likeness of sinful flesh. He came in our nature. This is the incarnation. Here's the necessity of the incarnation, the miracle of the incarnation, that God, the eternal Son, took our flesh along with all of its weaknesses. True man and true God. Notice, of course, here that Paul is careful always, as we should be, as we speak. He says that Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't come in sinful flesh. He came in the likeness of it. He took to himself our nature. He took our weaknesses, but he did not take our sinfulness. Until that time when he bore our sin on the cross. Our sin, not his own. He came in the likeness, the image, the form of sinful flesh. Oh, it was truly flesh. It was truly our nature. He was truly and completely man, but still completely sinless and holy. And he came, Paul says, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Now that phrase is important. It means much more than simply that his death had some sort of vague relationship to sin. It has specifically to do with Offering a sacrifice for sin. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we call the Septuagint, the vast majority of the time that 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 Greek phrase that we have translated for sin is used, it is specifically in reference to sacrifice. A sacrifice for sin. And in fact, most English translations... I'm a little surprised here that the ESV didn't quite do it, but most English translations translate it in such a way to get to that. Um, Because it it may escape, just to read for sin, might escape our notice and our understanding of those things. So, for example, the New American Standard says that God did this, sending His own Son in the likeness of sin and as an offering for sin. Which gets to it. The New King James Version says, on account of sin. The NIV even says, to be a sin offering. Uh, The New Living Translation says, as a sacrifice for our sins. The Christian Standard Bible says, as a sin offering. 
So all of those trying to bring out this idea that that phrase, and for sin, is what we might call a, a technical term. It has to do with the fact that as Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh, He came for a specific purpose to deal with sin through the offering up of Himself as a sacrifice for sin. That, more than anything else, explains why Christ came into this world. He came, as the angel Gabriel told Matthew, to save His people from their sins. 1 Peter 2.24 says he, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says for our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin. And Hebrews 9.28 says that Jesus was offered once to bear the sins of many. All of which he bore, as Paul says here, in the flesh. That is, in his flesh as the God-man. The other question is, is why did he do it? Well, verse 4 gives us a purpose. That all the law rightly required would be fulfilled in us. He says that, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that includes not just what the law forbids, but what it requires. Our Lord Christ, by His death, paid for every single thing in your life, Christian, where God says, you shall not, but you say, I shall. Every time you put your trust and your devotion in something other than God, every time you let your mind wander or you fell asleep during worship or thought, I'll just coast through this morning's service or I won't even go, every time you disregarded the the needs of your neighbor, Every time you thought that your anger at your brother was justified when God's word said it wasn't. Every time you said, either in thought or word or deed, not thy will but mine be done. Jesus bore that. Jesus condemned that in his flesh and paid for it. But Jesus also, by his life, remember, provided for every single time in your life where God says, you shall, you said in your rebellion, I'd rather not. Every time you fell short in your worship, every time you disregarded the need of another, every time you did not love your neighbor as yourself, every time you read, you shall, but decided not to, Jesus provided where you failed. And Jesus provided every drop of righteousness, even as he drank every drop of wrath for your sin. The active and the passive obedience of Christ came together so that there is therefore now no condemnation for you. We need both. We need forgiveness of sins But that only gets us halfway. Kids, if mom says clean your room and you don't, mom will typically punish you for not doing it. But guess what? Your room is still not clean. Uh, To be an obedient child, you still have to clean your room. 
And we not only need to be cleared of our guilt, we not only have to have someone else take our punishment for not cleaning our room, but it's just as important that we be seen as having a spotless room. And that's what we have through the work of Christ. He took our sin, he gave his righteousness so that God can look at you as someone with no sin and all the righteousness needed. Perfection. And that's what justification is all about. And because of all of that, there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. Or as Paul puts it at the very end of of verse 4, instead of saying those who are in Christ Jesus, he refers to you differently. He says, in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now we're going to talk more about that next week. But do see this, when he says that all of this is true uh, for us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, that's not a condition that Paul is laying down uh, that you need to work towards. It's not an encouragement to walk more according to the Spirit, but it's a description. It is a description of those who enjoy these blessings, of what they are in Christ, of what you are in Christ. One of those whom the Son has made free and therefore are free indeed. Because that's what you are in Christ and through Christ. And to all of that, let us say, Amen. Father, we thank you once again as we are reminded once again uh, through these words that our salvation is attributable to you and to your grace and to your love and to the work of your Son. That we are not able to, to contribute. That the law is not able to save us. That it only contributes condemnation. But that Christ contributes life. Christ has contributed a rescue for us. He has freed us from our sin, from the law of sin and death. We thank you. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in this truth today. Help us to rejoice in knowing that there is no condemnation in us because Christ has set us free, because the Spirit has set us free through the gospel of Christ. We pray, Father, that we would rejoice in that that we would adore you all the more, O God, because of that, that we would worship you. We would worship you with everything that is in us, Lord. May our hearts, may our lives, our words, our thoughts, may, may everything be put forward as a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to you. That's our desire, Lord. Help us to make it so in our lives. And we ask this all in his most wonderful and most precious name. Amen.